listening to the PR Wind Down Podcast, the show for public relations professionals who are ready to see real change in the PR industry. We are your hosts, April White and Laura Schooler. Let's get ready to wind down. Hey, Laura, do you want to kick things off with the horror story? Let's do it. <laughs> okay, here we go. And remember, everybody, we have not seen or read the horror story, which is yeah, why we right. read it so awkwardly because we don't even know what we're getting no, into. I'm, I'm literally trying to find it right now. Okay, let's see. Okay. We've all had clients that are unresponsive from time to time, but I've never had another one as bad as this. My client was a small Southern fast food chain. They constantly had these grand big ideas for PR, but they refused any scheduled meetings and only occasionally got back to us via email, which typically required numerous follow-ups. In one instance, the client told us that they would be launching a new chicken sandwich a few months before it hit the test markets. But they did not give us any information regarding the launch timing, the description of the sandwich, or other important details. Then, about a month before it hit the market, they came to us complaining that they had little media coverage and said that we were not gaining the traction they wanted. They were expecting to reignite the chicken wars. They berated us for not doing our jobs, even as we were pitching daily via email and phone calls with very little information and no photos. <laughs> Here's my question. How do you level set with a client who has big expectations and no follow through without outright telling them that they dropped the ball? <laughs> oh God, I wish this was unique. I know. I don't think they understand the amount of effort and work it takes on their part to get you the information that you need. And I think a lot of it is because people really don't understand PR. Right. So I think there are some techniques to do it. One is the old fashioned stalking the client. If they don't respond to emails, do they respond to phone calls, text messages, Marco Polo, Instagram? Marco. I mean, Slack? I don't know, something else I'm going to think, um, Telegram, WhatsApp, like is like, where are they going for their personal information and, and chats? And can you hit them up there, right? Can you find them where they're actually paying attention? One method is just be having enough client calls, which sucks because it takes a lot of time, but getting them on a client call and just perpetually asking them and dragging it out and dragging it out, and dragging it out. One method is getting them deliverables with a timeline that say, we're going to deliver this by this time and this by this time and this by this time, provided you pr get this by this time, this by mm -hmm. this time, this by this time, and then following up, not just on the email, but like, hey, we're not going to be able to meet our deadline as set and agreed upon at the beginning of the month if you don't get us XYZ by this time. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. And then I would see the other one that we've tried using at times is here's a questionnaire for you to tell us about this thing with all the questions that we have that will help us get the answers we need to pitch it. And sometimes even that annoys them because they don't want to have to answer it or they don't have the answers, but at least then you can show them that they haven't given you the answers. Mm -hmm. And then the other option is to write a press release with the very little information you have to show them that you don't have any information. Right. So you can have like, you know, so-and-so is launching a new chicken, mar chicken sandwich in blank, blank, blank markets on blank, blank, blank day. 
the chicken sandwich will be different in blank 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 way <laughs> right like right. here's literally like here's video and photos insert photo right. here insert, insert photo, video insert right video right. right for more information visit and then show them that they haven't put a new sub page out yet or whatever their website right. so i think you can show them i mean we've had we had some luck with that with with a past client laura and i worked on this together where it was like sometimes getting him the outline of a press release as painful as that is and such a waste of time for everybody actually showed him we don't have anything right you didn't get us anything but it's it i would say all of those are better than just emailing again and emailing again and emailing i mean like the more proactive you can be the better and, I mean, and what if you really don't have any information though you know what i mean where it's like uh X client is launching something on this day somewhere. And we, I mean, you know, some clients literally vanish on them. Like, let's say you thought you were gonna announce something in February and the entire month of February goes by and you can't get anything out of them. And all of a sudden you haven't done anything well, for a whole month and there you are in March and then they're gonna be like, well, what did we pay you for, right? Do you give them an so extra free month? I mean, or what do you do? So I think there are a couple other things you could do behind the scenes. I think one is if it's a big brand and you can get by with this, if maybe this is KFC, right? right. Would you be interested in the secret, the secret new chicken sandwich coming out from KFC details to be disclosed upon approval of this pitch or what, you know, I don't know. Maybe you can get by with that if it's a big brand. Mm -hmm. And then when they come back and say, yeah, I need more information. Then you say, hey, the New right. York Times food writer wants to talk to you about the chicken sandwich. They have these questions for you. And then it's not you asking, it's the New York Times and maybe that helps. Another thing that you can do, which is this is like very sneaky. This is very, very sneaky and maybe a little bit ethically dubious. You can have a friendly journalist who may or may not ever write about your client who can pretend to be interested on behalf of an outlet they freelance for or an outlet they do write for who can get the information from the client. Oh, during the interview. Yep. Tell the reporter what questions to ask so you can get the information. I may or may not have done this. Ah, well, the thing that I would be worried about in terms of going, like, let's say it's not some big, you know, KFC brand, what if it's like a startup or a way lesser known type of company? That's not even a consumer brand necessarily, right? And you're like, well, whatever, I'm just going to go out to some of the reporters we're going to try to get with the scantest of information what if it's like so scant that you basically you know shoot your load and then the reporter's like this is nothing i don't want to talk to them and then like you may have had a really interesting announcement or story or interview but you couldn't get the, you know what i mean I, it's just it is a real dilemma that comes up way more than anybody who's not in the industry would believe mm -hmm. And I just think true. eventually it's a matter of time until the client realizes that they're wasting money and somebody above them, if they're not the CEO, is going to get mad. <laughs> right. I mean, or you could fire the client. I mean, that's your other option, right? right? If you don't get assist information before the launch, we're firing you. But I'm not really that aggressive and I think yeah. most, most agencies aren't. Well, no, because you want to do the work, you're waiting for the work and it's just, and hopefully it ends up working out. But yes, I've, I've been in situations like that a lot and then but of course just keep in mind the one who gets the most quote in trouble is the agency yes 
So th in that case, you then I would say, your... yeah, paper trail, paper trail, paper trail. Like yeah. show them that you asked for the information, you needed it in order to do X, Y, Z and you needed it by X, Y, Z date. And then, you know, do, do the same thing, right? Rinse and repeat. I still think that sometimes there's just, it's, it's, it can be really challenging and I don't have an answer for somebody who's just got like a super, super stubborn. I think you just got to hit from all the sides. I said, you know. like, try it all right. Text them, call their cell Instagram. If they're on Instagram a lot, hit them up there. If they're on Facebook, hit them up there. I mean, you can be annoying, right? Because at least then they know that you care and you're really trying to to chase down right. the information to do your yeah. job on their behalf. So, so it's very, very Jerry Maguire. Help me help you. Right. <laughs> help me help you. Exactly. Help me help you. <laughs> so I think it's a lot of that. Hey, Laura, I think I see our guest joining. All right. Our guest today is Lana Dow. She's the Chief Client Officer here at Trust Relations. She's here to talk to us about operational efficiencies and how to organize a PR agency, including office accounts, protocols, and more. So I would love to let her kind of kick things off. I know in, in Lana's previous role, she helped put together a New York office for a UK-based firm and get them up and running. And I would love to hear from you the challenges associated with that and, and what are like the main pain points you have to solve and ideally in what order, if you have a, a strong opinion on that. Well, hi guys, it's so good to be here and thanks for having me, April and Laura. When it comes to working with a mother company that is abroad, that, that really <laughs> gives a whole other set of challenges. So for, for one, there's the literal time difference where if you wake up in New York time, you're five hours behind the UK office. So you're going to just have to ensure that any processes and protocols are in place that, you know, if they're timely, that everyone knows that time difference for one. And then the UK office themselves know to prioritize the New York office's asks during that time. So it's it's really just like the logistics for one is an issue, <laughs> um, a challenge that I had to overcome. And really it, when you have a mother agency that has been around forever, they kind of have their ways of working that makes sense in their particular office, right? But that way of working doesn't necessarily translate over to how things work in you know the states so that was another thing of you know the the hr policies in and of themselves are going to be different so that is something that i had to think about you know they don't really care about independence day they don't know what that is nor should they thanksgiving right thanksgiving is like not something that they had to think about so it's it was partially an education moment for for both sides and then being able to kind of ensure that everyone was in the know of when you know what's important in the landscape, the media landscape in the UK versus the States, et cetera. So there, there are many, many different challenges, but more so than anything to start, you always have to educate the people that you're working with to ensure everyone's on the same page and understands the priorities across the board. Mm -hmm. I know that hiring and firing is much different in the UK than it is in the US. Yeah, I thankfully did not have to be a part of that on, okay. on the UK side of things. But yes, it is quite different. Yeah. Yeah. The laws mm -hmm. and everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like, and w one country can't believe that the other country does it that way. And yeah. vice versa. It's like, what? Yeah. That's just human nature, I guess. Yeah. 
So what's your experience in terms of where agencies tend to need the most help? If, are, are there common pain points that you've seen across agencies? Yeah, and really where it is, is I try my very best to ask as many questions first. So just to give you an example of how I ended up doing things when I came to trust is the, the first part, if you're going to come in and make any change, I think it's very, very important to ask as many questions to the people you're going to be putting change onto, and for lack of a better word. And so for the first week, all I did, and I did this with my past agency too, but for the first week, I wanted to know what's working and what isn't working. And there are no better people than the people that are working in the agency in order to tell me that, right? And, mm -hmm. and it would have gone really poorly if I had just come in and been like, cool, you're a virtual agency. These are the things that I think you should do because who am I to say that? You know, there may be things that I think worked for another agency that was, you know, in an in-office culture that really do not apply here. And I've actually noticed that quite a bit. There are many, many things that I think worked well in my New York office that do not at all apply in this, in this capacity. So, <laughs> you know, and that's not to say it's better or worse. It's just, that is the nature of the beast. And what I would say is just day-to-day -day workflow. That's a common problem, right? Is how do teams communicate? Mm -hmm. it, like, how do they do that best? How do people, how are we able to be accountable for our roles and responsibilities on accounts? And, and you guys actually had a great base for that already, which is the staffing chart by client, which, you know, is like 20% of my life now for good reason. <laughs> um, and, and just to, for anyone that doesn't know what that is, it's basically a, a living Google document of every account that we take on and the roles and responsibilities that each person plays on that particular account to make it very, very clear who owns what really in the grand scheme of things. And that really makes things much more efficient. It helps us kind of delegate things more quickly, more efficiently, so that no one's ever confused. And that's not to say that it is very stringent and you're, you're only going to be responsible for those things, but it allows some ownership there. And then it helps allow that person to delegate if they can't do it for whatever reason. So I would say day-to-day mm -hmm. -day workflow is definitely one thing that is very, very common across all agencies. What was your degree in in college? Like, is this something that you were learning organizational <laughs> behavior or something? This is so funny. Um, no. So my degree is in communication with an emphasis in public relations from the University of San Diego. Okay. Um, so really what I think is there was very important for me was to understand PR. So that's why when I had my PR career, when I was just doing that, that made it necessary for me to be able to give you better processes, protocols, controls, right. Cause you understand the Cause, business. Cause I get it. I understand right. what, what is terrible, <laughs> what, you know, what is really hard for me to do my job. And so that, that was very necessary. So the organizational bit and the understanding of like why and how things should be communicated across an organization is a, is a personal passion of mine. So I just think human communication in general is incredibly fascinating. And a lot of those same principles transfer over to organizations too. So right. I guess that's why. Well, and, and also, I guess I'm boring. Uh, <laughs> no, but you also did a lot. I, I think what's, what's interesting is you had drawn the parallel the other day of like how you loved event planning all the time with the same event, right? But it's like, yes. kind of, yes, it's but it's an agency, but it's yeah. an agency. Yeah. Yep. But it's like mm -hmm. orchestrating all the people and making sure everything is in place 
and these people mm -hmm. are clicking and this is happening and it's to make sure that the whole thing comes together. Exactly. Um, yeah. So what made you interested in making the switch from being in case there are other people like you out there, like how did you know this? <laughs> other strange be beings like myself. <laughs> yeah. Other, other magical creatures who actually want to do operations and PR. How, how would they know that they're you? Like, how did you know that you were more inclined to do something like this than account work? Because I think what, it, what ended up happening was I, I became an event specialist in, within my agency because I just, I was just better at it. You know, I, I, well, I had a love for it rather. I wouldn't say I was better at it because I ended up it was your passion. having, it was my passion. So I ended up doing more of that, but still managing accounts. And the, the part of my days where I was doing the event management and like building the relationships were, were the parts of my day that I was happiest. And though I found joy in certain aspects of account work, so I loved the media relations bit, like building those relationships so that, you know, it didn't feel only transactional, like do this for me. You know, I loved the part where I got to know them as people, but there, but it wasn't my passion. It didn't make me happy. Whereas like, the event planning, the orchestrating, the coordinating to make sure everyone felt very clear with like certain processes, procedures, whatever. Those were the moments where it, when it worked, I was like, this is amazing, you know? <laughs> Whereas other people that like love PR get that like, this is amazing moment from right. when they get their client in, you know, the Wall Street Journal yeah. or whatever. That's funny. Right? What did I say? I, say? I feel like I won the lottery in a slot machine when like, when you get that like big, you know, hit or whatever. Yeah. That's the sign of someone that is supposed to be doing what they're doing, right. you know? And, and then so, five seconds yeah. later, I'm, you know, depressed again, but that's just how <laughs> us younger people are. You're not alone. You're not alone in that. <laughs> but I, I think Lana is also an inspiration for a lot of people in that she actually came to me after I was interviewing her for a normal job and was like, hey, what do you think about if I did this? And so I think that's a cool thing. If you know your strengths and you want to lean into them, mm -hmm there might be an opportunity out there in the world for you to go do this thing that you dreamed up. Even if it's like, right. I like PR, but I don't really like pitching or maybe there's, you know, maybe there is a way to, to, to dovetail all of your, your passion points. and what you're naturally good at, because I mean, I definitely am not naturally good at doing what Lana does. Well, right. Yeah. So she figured out your need and what you weren't that if she listened when you talked to yep. her probably heard what you didn't really like to do so much and she was like well wait a minute that's what i like to do maybe yeah. i can create this job well and, and i save april and she interviewed people behind the scenes which i found out later to find out what our <laughs> what our pain points were as an agency and then was like oh this is what trust relations needs yep i but, can do that and, and that's <laughs> and that's and that's the thing right it's just like in the same and the same um, principles that I use to be better at media relations are the same skills and principles that I kind of apply to this situation. It's like if you want to get to know a reporter, you want to be a trusted source, you have to do your research on them. You have to figure out what do they need, what do they like, what do they not like, you know, whatever it happens to be in the you have to dig very deep to figure out what the need is and then become the answer to that need. And that was really all I, all I did. So I have a question for you. I know it's no secret that most agencies are not well organized and they are, don't have good protocols in place. And most places don't have a 
you know, Lana on. That's, that was, yes. I think that's where we're ending up. We're going to end up at the end of this question, but I want to hear the rest of it. <laughs> so I was going to ask, why do you think that's the case? Is it, is it, I know I'm just going to throw out some hypotheses. Is it that sure. people in PR tend to be creative and they're not numbers people and they're not naturally into this kind of organization? Is it that they don't put a priority on this being like a position that needs to be filled and and done full-time because it is a full-time job. If not, I mean, eventually it might be a full-time job that you're overseeing two other people doing or three or four, right? Like, yeah. is it that they just don't have the position in place? Is it that, you know, the industry itself is just chaotic and clients are chaotic and it's, it feels futile to even try? What's your theory? Great question. So if it is futile to put these things in place, that means I'm out of a job. So I'm hoping that that's not the case <laughs> for one. But I think what Laura hinted at before is that rarely is there a me when it comes to traditional agencies and likely because they're always in the red. And so it feels like this is an investment that they don't want to make. And, right, you're a cost center mostly, yes, not right. Yes, exactly. And is the person at the top thinking that, is it worth the cost? And a lot of the time, they're so in the red that they just need to put the cost towards more team members so they can take on more clients. And then this problem keeps becoming bigger and bigger and bigger until it, the it's agency unsolvable. shuts down or people are leaving all the time because they feel like they're not being heard, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, this reminds me, and I don't know if we have time for a story, but I have Absolutely. a story that I was <laughs> listening to on this leadership podcast that I follow quite closely, but it was about Sam Pruitt Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A. So back in the 90s, there was a company called Boston Chicken, which mm -hmm. you probably know now as Boston Market. And I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but it was basically Chick-fil-A's like first serious competition because it was chicken and it was a similar setup in relation to the other fast food players in the space. They didn't really have like direct competition, whatever. And Boston Market had like giant expansion plans and they wanted to be a billion dollar company or have a billion dollars in sales by like 2000, I think was the, the year. And Chick-fil-A started getting very nervous because, you know, they too were wanting to expand, but they were like, should we expand faster than them? Should we expand like first, whatever, you know? The, the typical conversations. So it, all of this culminated in a boardroom with all of their VPs and their marketing team about how to grow bigger and faster. And the conversations going on and on and on. And then Truett at the end of the table starts banging his fists on the table to get everyone's attention until everyone's listening to him and says, I'm sick and tired of us getting bigger. What we need to be talking about is getting better. Because if we get better, our customers will demand that we get bigger. And then that mm -hmm. kind of got the ball rolling and changed their entire strategy. And ironically, Boston Market ended up filing for bankruptcy in 2000 at the same time that Chick-fil-A hit a billion dollars in sales that same year. So, so I think of this always when we're growing is that mm -hmm. if you don't become better, while you're still, while you're, yeah, as you're growing, as you're scaling and you mm -hmm. ignore all that stuff, you'll just grow into the ground. <laughs> like that's what will happen. You just can't, you won't be able to grow anymore right. because you don't have any of these things in place and then you'll end up failing regardless. So it's really just growing smarter is the, is the right way to do things. So I don't know if that helps answer your question, April. 
but yeah, it's great. No, it's my, my take and on I've, it. I've already seen it happen um, for people <clears throat> listening. I mean, it's it's been crazy. So when I brought Lana in, the investment se- did seem like, wow, this is this is really going out on a limb, right? But I know we need this, and I'm nervous about scaling without these processes in place to Lana's point, because then you're going to crash the whole thing, right? I've noticed already since she's come on that we've been doing a better job and we're doing better client service and we're getting more and more and more clients. So it, it does make a big difference. It really does. And I think it makes the team happier across the board. Well, I feel like without Lana, <laughs> then you would have to do a lot of what she's doing and rely on like teams to do what she's doing. And that might be asking PR practitioners to do one thing too much or one thing that they're not that good at. And Amen. That's and a great point. And it's not their passion point, right? right. It's like asking them to do budgeting. Their pain point. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. And that, yeah. and that's really what would happen with me and my other jobs is, you know, thankfully I did like this. And so I was able to help my last agency do this, but, but no, I was also managing six very big brands mm-hmm. under, you know, under this very large beauty umbrella. And I was not sleeping. (laughs) I would say I was working until anywhere between one to 3am every night, waking up the next morning at at like 6.50 and going back to work (sighs) and doing it all over again. And I did that for two and a half years. So, so just know that it is not possible for someone to be a normal human and do both as a PR person. Like you do need a dedicated person to do this job and do it well. Right. And I wouldn't even say I could do it well because hello, who can do anything well with that little amount of sleep? That right? little sleep? No. Well, I was, I was trying to do it and I could do it to a point and then we got too big. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, mm-hmm. but I wasn't never doing it as well because it also was never my sole focus. So mm-hmm. I was like, I was half doing it, but I feel yeah. like that's kind of the whole trick of being a startup founder is knowing at what point you just can't sort of half-ass things and you have to then give right. them to somebody that actually wants to, to do bend. the job. Yeah. It's almost a breaking point. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Like, yep. uh, uh-oh. Well, and I mean, working in-house at a lot of companies, <laughs> it was always, especially at like PwC, where literally my salary is coming out of the partner's pockets. Mm-hmm. Total cost center. We don't bring business into the company. Mm-hmm. And the team was pretty big. And then the internal communications team was even three times bigger and the marketing mm-hmm. people and they hated us. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was millions of dollars they were spending and they're like, Oh God, do we really need this? You know, and every yeah. year they'd like lay people off or cut this or cut that. And it was just like, all right guys, like, and then if you don't do it and then Deloitte, you know, gets all of the press and stuff, then you're going to start screaming and yelling about why don't we have as much press as Deloitte? Well, because you know you let half of your staff go or you're only paying you know junior people to do senior level work that kind of thing but again it was because we were a cost center and companies a really hard time like figuring out where that point is you know yep how how much you invest in that but i and i understand that i mean you want to be getting money back especially in like you know america like i what am i getting for this you know yes yes so yeah, I mean that's a, a great point, and hopefully, I've made I've made the investment worth making. But just just knowing that you it first really has to start from the top, right? To for the person to know 
like April said, I'm investing in this because it's necessary for me to grow. That is the only way that I'm going to be able to get you to get more revenue in the future is like, mm -hmm. it's, it's that part of like first making that connection. And most people are like, well, if I'm not seeing the money right away, is this worth it? And having the foresight to know that, yes, it will pay off it is tried and true that like when you put these into place, your employees get more efficient. So they'll, do, they'll be able to do work faster. And if they're able to do work faster, that leaves them more capacity to take on other clients. And if you do better work for those clients, then other clients will hear of you, et cetera. And then better employees too, same deal. Like they'll tell their, their friends that I love working for this agency. Mm -hmm. And then these are all the reasons why I, I love working for the agency and then better talent comes your way, knocking on your door instead of you having to go out and find them. So, so yeah, it, it, I do understand the point of like, it doesn't seem like a immediate return, but at the end of the day, it, even if it isn't me, you know, it is a good investment to make for sure. Yeah. <laughs> what about, uh, so Lana, now that hopefully you're not working until um, between one and three in the morning every night, uh -huh. what else? do you do with your all your free time that you used to have <laughs> you're so funny um i my life is very different now than it was in new york i met the love of my life and we have a, a puppy her name is alia and she's a mini aussie and this is another reason why i, I love trust so much is april has a a a respect really for their her employees work-life balance and that is incredibly important to me that was a deal breaker for any new agency or any new job really that I went into after my role in New York because I was like this is not gonna apply because my priorities changed you know mm -hmm. I, I have a, a life that I want to live but that doesn't mean that I can't be a good employee you know building my life here in Austin is a priority of mine. I'm also a boxing trainer. So that is uh, another little side side hustle that I, I get to do. I feel very privileged to do it too. Wow. And, you must be good. Uh, yeah. Well, I I've mean, seen videos. <laughs> she's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> terrifying. Oh, but yeah. Wow. Too, too funny. Well, any final notes before speaking of work-life balance and boxing, we need to let Lana go so she can go yeah. to her boxing class. I would say for me, this is something that I think is really important whenever I put together processes and procedures for the team, or we come up with ideas where we're like, this is something that we need. I kind of always go through like six steps in my brain. I've never shared this with you, April, but this is kind of how this I do all it. new. I love as, it. Yeah. As soon as you like ask me and you say, this is where I think we need something. I go through these six steps in my brain. So the first is defining the issue. So you, a lot of the time, already know what the issue is because you're living it, so you know, right? And then I, in my brain, say, what does success look like? So a, a very concrete way of defining what success is. And then after I come up with that protocol, procedure, whatever it happens to be, I run it by you, we you know, say it's ready to be flown out the door. I then let every person that is affected by that change that new process, whatever, know how it affects them in their particular role and that whatever they're doing allows them to get to that definition of success. So basically give them the why, right? In every capacity, whether it's you're talking to your clients, you're talking to your team, whatever, they need to know why it's important in order for it to stick and for them to do it at all, right? <laughs> so, so that's the third thing I do and then execute it. And then after that, you reevaluate if it worked. And if it didn't, 
you say, okay, it didn't work here, so we need to change it. So it's ever changing, it never stops changing because as we grow and we scale, those things that I originally thought were gonna work probably are no longer going to work because of X, Y, Z things. So you have to keep reevaluating over and over again and then change it and then repeat. Mm -hmm. So it's just like this continuous motion of figuring out what success looks like, figuring out where the issue is, and then making sure everyone from top to bottom understands why you're doing it and what they're doing, and then actually doing it and then reevaluating it again. And it may seem kind of like insane, but that's the only way that you'll be able to grow and grow well is to have this continuous conversation with your organization and with yourself. I love that. We're definitely gonna have to do a blog about that. Yeah. But I don't know, again, like, do you really want to give all this away? To <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll keep her forever. We'll find some way. Anything else you want to plug before you, before you peace out and go hit some bags? Everyone should either join Trust Relations as an employee <laughs> or you should employ our services for your brands because we're amazing. <laughs> love it. Good plug. Shameless. So shameless. I love it. Amazing. Uh, thank cool. you, guys. Thank you, Lana. Have a great class. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye. bye. I think that we should get into the news of the week. Okay, let's do that. Let's let's get into this crazy story. Which crazy story are we talking about? Well, Jeff Bezos leaving um, behind a company that's created value. What's what the is- story? What's the real story there? That's the minute I saw that. I was like, what's going on? Uh, do we know? We'll never know, right? He owns the world. We'll never really know what's going on. But you don't remove a CEO like that when you're making more money than all the planets combined out of nowhere there's not a reason Mm-mm. am i right no and as a, i mean i gotta say as a pr person i am skeptical af that they are like preparing for something to come out and they're bracing for some information to yeah. surface right and they're preparing in advance by getting him out of the spotlight yeah. so that when it happens it doesn't take the company down right that's what it looks like to me. I, that's, I, that's what I was said. I, li- I saw it seven minutes later. I was saying to people, I'm like, what is going on behind the scenes over there? You don't do that unless there's a really crazy reason. Maybe he's eating the faces off of babies and drinking their blood, in fact. <laughs> I mean, anything's possible. That's, I'm kidding. I, want, I have to say, uh, that's joke from Schooler. <laughs> I know a lot of people think that, but I don't. <laughs> However, who knows what the hell? What 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 um reasons did they give even? So let's let's get into it. It says this is an analysis from CNN. So Bezos, the world's richest person until recently, has gone from selling books out of his garage to running a company that makes consumer electronics, produces award-winning films and TV shows, offers organic groceries, and hosts some of the world's biggest websites. With each new innovation, Bezos and Amazon have offered the promise of making life easier, more convenient, and enriching for customers. But these services also became testaments to Amazon's ever-expanding power, influence, and self-interest, inspiring fierce criticism for the company's opponents, that Amazon kills brick-and-mortar businesses, that it bullies workers, that it uses the data from its massive online storefront to maintain a monopoly, that its partnerships with law enforcement have made it an easy accessory to discriminating policing. That's from CNN. Then Business Insider 
there and, and obviously we should say here that he's not disappearing altogether he's taking on a new role as an executive chairman and then facebook will be the only tech company in the quote big five that still has its founder as its ceo as a result of this move by bezos then they say they just say he's stepping down and that Andy Jassy, a longtime lieutenant of Bezos and CEO of the company's booming cloud business, will replace him in the third quarter of 2021. But that doesn't mean Bezos is done with Amazon. He'll be stepping down his new role, will be the executive chairman. The, the fact that it's in the wake of all of this tech censorship stuff and the new administration, and it's very weird timing, right? I mean, I think any time to get rid of him would be weird timing because of who he is in the world. Right. Maybe we'll find out he's poisoning all of our food at Whole Foods or something. <laughs> I don't know, but if they're not, I mean, it, I, yeah, right, he's not stepping down until the summer, right? I heard that. So that's a little weird too. So it's not like some emergency mm -hmm. removal. So maybe, I, and the fact that they don't give any actual reason is also weird. Wants. Like to spend more time with his family, you know, whatever they, you know, usually say. They didn't say anything, right? Not in this story that you're reading. And I haven't heard. I mean, is he dying? I mean, that's a good hypothesis. I mean, like, I, you know, I not Jobs? good as in like I hope, but I mean, I guess it's possible that he's having health issues that will come out or. Yeah something like that i mean that that makes sense i think that makes more sense than anything that i've thought of so far i you guess time, time will tell right and even if there is something that could come out and they know it could come out doesn't mean we'll ever know right and then like they have this new guy like you know so, in so awful so that he's like ready to roll and and then they'll say you know we had sorry he's got Lou Gehrig's disease and, you know, he's in the lab or he's got pancreatic cancer or whatever. These things where they know like the, where the timeline is. And that's my guess. I'm not happy to guess that. It just makes the most sense. It makes sense. So let's see. How does this type of transition at a large company impact PR? How do companies plan for and execute the communication of such a big transition? What does it mean for Jeff Bezos' public image? And what does it say about the media landscape today or how this might impact PR? Well, I mean, we've talked about a number of these things. The, th the difference here is that he is the richest, ergo, most powerful man in the world, arguably, right? So I've been involved in secret executive moves. And some of the times I didn't even know what the secret was. There was something going on that I had to be ready for and I had no idea what it was. And so then we did and announced it, you know, the CEO of the company I was working for was leaving and going to work for the competitor or whatever it was. But it was never somebody that anybody really cared that much about that was going to like move markets and change the face of humanity or something. Right. This is just different alone. There's very few people who could make, you know, that much of an impact in the business world like this. But it is kind of impressive that we're talking here, we don't really know why, and nobody seems to be, I mean, somebody must be asking that question, but that their PR people are keeping this totally on lockdown. Mm -hmm. There's no leaks, right? I don't think. Okay, let's do like a super quick, fast All right, search, search to make sure new... that there is no new news about this. I'll, I'll sing while you're looking. No, no, so bad at singing. <laughs> uh, 
It's a long way down. You like my song? No, I love it. Keep going. It's all the same thing. No new tale to tell. I don't see anything recent. I mean, I just see... It's crazy. It's crazy that they're keeping it. Which tells me, like I told you, I have been in places where even though I was like supposed to be very instrumental in the announcement of something, I didn't even know what the topic was. So I think they have very few people who really know what's going on. And they just like feed the bare minimum information to the people who execute the PR. And that's, you know how you keep a secret, April? You don't tell anybody. That's, a, that's very wise. But the PR around this is some of the most vital public relations strategy and execution of anything that could happen right now, don't you think? Mm -hmm. What could be more important than this? I mean, not very many things in this country and maybe in others. Well, they've obviously, I should say, whoever's doing the PR on it is doing a fantastic job because all I'm seeing is the celebration of somebody. Mm -hmm. The weird thing is it almost looks coordinated, like they all had this in the hopper. Maybe they did, maybe it was embargoed, I don't know. It looks like, because they have these slideshows put together, it almost yeah. looks like, you know how news outlets write obituaries for Ahead of time, yeah. Ahead of the, time. The New so York Times. It, yeah. They and just slot like, a few facts in, yeah. It looks like an obituary for Jeff Bezos, but it's him leaving because it's right. all celebrating the many successes over the years, and here he is here. Oh, right. So maybe the PR team started seeding the uh, soil months ago to say, you better get the history and timeline of Bezos in the hopper because we've got some big news and you, we can't we're not gonna be able to give you that many details but you should backfill your story before we tell you maybe because you're right it does it is like a, an obituary sort of strategy yeah here. and all Speaking of them are of which, they say all the same nothing except no, how great you, he is he's so great read, did you read you know christopher Plummer died this weekend no he, i didn't see that yeah yeah so he did and he was 91 the New York Times obituary was amazing. It was so not, and maybe it's because of the Times, they usually go a little off the reservation. But like you said, they probably had it 95% written already, especially a 91-year-old guy, right? Oh my God, the best part was talking about, you know, he's probably best known for longest because of the sound of music. And he hated the sound of music. And they talked about that he used to call it S and M, or the sound of mucus. And yeah. I was like, oh my God. And it was because he was this snobby Shakespearean actor who was, you know, like trained in Britain and, you know, wanted to be a real actor. And like, this was like uh, drivel to him, the sound of music. Isn't that awesome? The sound of mucus. It's terrible. <laughs> it is obituary. I was like, I love this guy. I didn't even know that he was like such a jerk like in a hilarious way right amazing <laughs> okay i think we covered it let's move on to something else what not to do okay <laughs> i like telling people what not to do i i see that okay so what not to do from pr pros you know don't give up or just take no for an answer when a journalist rejects your first pitch I don't know if I agree with that, but go on. <laughs> I say, they say no, they say no. <laughs> That's hilarious. Do? So I think there are a couple ways you can take that. One, I know what I've personally done is, okay, they didn't take that. Let me figure out what 
pitch 2.0 is, right? Yeah. And come back to them and follow up and say, hey, just following up to let you know also, blah, blah, blah. Because like pitch number one didn't even get any love. It didn't even right. get rejected. Yes. Let me try this angle instead. Also, did you know, blah, 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 blah. And sometimes if you can go get the stats from the client or whatever in the meantime, or maybe they, they already did an interview with another outlet, and then you can at least come to them with something new that you're mm -hmm. using in your follow-up. Then you can also do the thing where you say, you know, hey, I'd love any feedback on this. Why isn't it working for you? But you can also do the thing where you say, what are you working on? And these are other clients I represent. Would you be interested? You know, is there anything that you're looking for help on if this isn't a great fit for you? So I think that going to the same reporter, maybe on the, yeah, well, on the same client with a totally different pitch mm -hmm. works. I mean, I've had that work recently. Like, you know, most of the time reporters don't answer you at all, right? Let's be yeah. honest, and, you know, unless you're, a major company and you contact, you know, talk to these people. And if you're a startup and you're just trying to like get coverage somewhere within the realms of target media that you're, that you're targeting, you might go out with a pitch that nobody answers or one person says no. And I think in that case, instead of like trying to hammer that unknown company's first pitch, keep, you know, don't take these people off the list, obviously, if you really think that they're, you know, the right people who should have interest in this based on what they write about, based on, you know, what you've been seeing them talking about on Twitter or their social media. Mm -hmm. And then you could come back to them again with something else that the company is doing, or maybe with a different spokesperson who talks about a different subject that is still relevant to your, your client or something. Mm -hmm. And then I've seen things pop because sometimes it's about the timing and sometimes it's about a different topic under the same umbrella but i have a little bit of a hard time like trying to somebody say, especially if somebody says no and then you'd be like well please <laughs> i mean unless you truly well, got new information so i know i know there's one girl on our team who whenever she gets a note she basically comes back and says i hear you loud and clear here's some other stories from my other clients so right she doesn't just take that as like put my tail between my legs and run away and never talk to them again. I That's like that. Okay. They didn't like that one, but let me come back and say, okay, well, if you don't like that story, I have another one from this client. Yeah. If they don't like that one. You come back. Hey, well, I don't know. Maybe you'd be more interested in this from this client. That's better. That I like, I think that makes more sense because you're then giving them something new and different instead of trying to like, be like, but I want you to write about this client. Cause then you're no, like, no, no, you can't, I don't nut job. You can't but I mean, have you worked for agencies? I've worked for agencies where like your manager wants you to be like, why'd they say no? Well, find out and tell them they should cover it anyway. And it's like, oh my God, like, right. I'm sure. And now they'll never, they've blocked me and we'll never be able to talk to them ever again. So great. Right. Right. But if you continue like, yeah, if the other clients are in their potential wheelhouse of what they would cover, that could make sense because at least you know they're reading your stuff and they're taking the time to reply. So you're like, oh, I've got a live, like interested party. Right. Better because instead of somebody, somebody just actually read something, right? Yeah. yeah. But you don't, I, I just, I'm always afraid of tipping it to the point where they're like, oh my God, block. And then you're never getting through to them. So you have to be intelligently informative and don't just throw like, you know, garbage at, at reporters. 
so you can mark it off on your list. No, never a good idea. I've also had some luck with the, just following up a final time before I take you off my list, you know, in case you're interested. Like that actually can, sometimes that gets a response too, yeah. because they, they're appreciative that you're recognizing that they're not responding. And every once in a while, they're like, oh, I did mean to respond to this, but I didn't. Right. And, I they're, not, and they're not, right. they're not going to follow with me again because they said that. So right. And these are, but these are like the reporters who you really think, I mean, you know, because they cover the very specific industry that your client is in, that you really feel that they would be interested in this company yeah. if they just talk. I get that. But if you've got a list yeah, yeah. of like 85 and you're just trying to like force somebody to write, that's different than like, dude, you literally cover my industry. You covered our three biggest yeah. competitors last month. Like you need to talk to my client about what they're doing because it is so relevant to what you cover. That's yeah. different. Yeah. yeah, I agree with that. I think it's a wrap. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in for the PR Wind Down podcast. And many thanks to our guest, Lana, for joining us today for a wonderful interview. Yes. Remember, you can submit your own agency stories and questions, and please share our show with your friends and colleagues. Also, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating. It really helps us to reach new listeners like you. And if you have an anonymous PR horror story of your own, send it our way at the contact email below in the episode notes. We can't wait to wind down with you again next week. Yeah.